0: Please turn with me if you would in your Bibles to Genesis chapter five. We are getting back into our sermon series through the book of Genesis. I'm picking up this morning in chapter five. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the hope of the promised land and We pray, Father, that you would grow that hope in our hearts even as we read and meditate on uh, Genesis chapter 5. We pray that you would teach us by your Spirit and grow us in our faith, in your promises, and in our longing for that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 5, beginning in the first verse. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Five hundred and ninety five years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were seven hundred and seventy seven years and he died. After Noah was five hundred years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, there is nothing like the birth of a baby to inspire hope. So much promise, so much potential, anything can happen. Their whole life is ahead of them. Uh, The birth of a baby is, is most often a time of excitement and energy and celebration and anticipation and, well, hope. The birth of children plays a central role in the book of Genesis. Beginning with the promise of a seed of the woman to come and defeat the work of the devil, we are on the lookout, on the lookout for the promised child. The first child to be born was Cain, you may remember, and despite Eve's faith and excitement, he was a bit of a disappointment. Rather than come and undo the serpent's work, he carried it forward by murdering his own brother. Cain's family line was a a devolution of sorts, climaxing with Lamech, who murdered a man for insulting him, and then he sang and boasted about it to his two wives, No promised seed there, no redemption, no hope. Then at the end of chapter four, we got a a glimpse. In Genesis, each section begins with these are the generations of, but often each section ends with a preview, an anticipation of things to come. Think of it as a a kind of post-credits scene which anticipates the sequel. So at the end of chapter four, we saw Seth's family begin to call on the name Of the Lord, hope, a light in dark times. Well, this morning we move on to Seth's line and the genealogy found in Genesis chapter 5. Now, I I love genealogies, by the way, biblical genealogies, that is, and especially those in the book of Genesis. They are always there for a purpose. Uh, You might think of it a bit like, uh, in Genesis, a bit like Where's Waldo? Uh, We're looking for the promised child. And with every new birth announcement, we ask, is this the one? Has the promised seed finally come? And as we look at this genealogy, uh, we're going to be learning about hope, hope ultimately that is directed toward that promised child. And we'll look at three things. We'll look at hope's necessity, hope's counterfeit, and hope's foundation. Hope's necessity, hope's counterfeit, and hope's foundation. So first, hope's necessity. The reality of death requires hope. Uh, We live in a broken world, uh, so broken that many despair of it ever getting better. Uh, Suicide rates in the U.S., especially among young people, have gone up, which means that there are people who believe that there is so much wrong with this world that it will be better not to be a part of it. Now, it is this reality of brokenness that necessitates hope. This chapter begins in verse 1 with the phrase, uh, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, referring to it as a book, which is not done in the other times when you have that phrase, these are the generations of, referring to it as, as the book of the generations of Adam may mean that Moses was actually quoting from an older work, a book that contained the genealogy of Adam. Uh, that, that wouldn't be unusual, by the way. Uh, multiple places in Scripture, Moses and others quote other books. So in Numbers chapter 21, verse 14, Moses quotes the book of the wars of the Lord. And in Joshua 10.13 and 2 Samuel 1.18, they both refer to the book of Jasher. And so this actually should give us a, a kind of confidence in what Moses is writing here. You might wonder, well, how did Moses know Adam's genealogy anyway? Well, one part of the answer is that there was already an existing record from which Moses could quote, right? He did his research, as all good historical writers do. As you come to this genealogy, there are two questions that people often ask and that I need to address, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here because these kinds of questions, I think, tend to distract us from the teaching of Scripture, but they do need to be commented on. Uh, The the first is the question of the ages of the people in this genealogy. You, You notice, maybe, that the lifespans of Adam's children here are extremely long. Adam lives 930 years. Seth lives 912 years. Methuselah, the oldest recorded man in the Bible, lives 969 years. What's going on? Well, some people simply dismiss this as a sign that Scripture is little more than a fairy tale, Clearly, it is in history, they say. Uh, look at the unrealistic age of Adam and his descendants. Some people try to explain the ages away, right? Maybe uh, by assuming that they counted years differently than we do. But there's no real evidence of that, and there's actually some evidence to the contrary. And so the best way of approaching this chapter is actually to take it at face value. Adam lived 930 years. How could that be? You might wonder. Well, let me say two things. Uh, The first is that, interestingly enough, other ancient Near Eastern writings also give old ages for similar genealogies. What this shows is that there was a, a kind of collective memory in the ancient Near East of their ancestors living extremely long lives. In fact, there is a list of ancient Sumerian kings who were said to have lived before the flood each of whom is said to have lived an extremely long life. In fact, there, the kings were said to reign for thousands of years. Uh, now, in light of that, actually, the biblical numbers become much more restrained and realistic. Uh, these aren't men who lived thousands of years, or, or tens of thousands of years in some cases, for the ancient Sumerian kings, uh, but hundreds of years. If Moses were exaggerating, he could have really exaggerated but he is just reporting relatively modest numbers. The second thing to say about these long lives is this. We will notice that after the flood, there is a fairly steady decrease in the length of the patriarch's lives. And though we cannot really know, it would seem that something in the post-flood world made the environment more hostile to human life. Remember, human beings were created to live forever, after all, And in light of forever, 930 years is really not so long. And remember that in the beginning, there was no sickness, no disease, no harmful germs. These things are a result of the fall and would have taken hold gradually and over time. But as the brokenness of this world took hold, human health and lifespans began to decrease, particularly after the flood. And so I think we should take these numbers at face value, recognizing that we can't fully understand how living in a perfect world would have affected the human lifespan and and then how the brokenness of this age, which is the only thing we have ever known, has contributed to the relatively short lifespans of today. Now, There's another thing uh, to mention about this genealogy, and that is the question of completeness. Uh, We read this genealogy and assume it records every generation from Adam to Noah, but is that a fair assumption? And again, I'll note just two things. First, in in Hebrew thought, father and son meant more than our English words. So just think about the, the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 begins like this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Jesus, strictly speaking, is neither son of David nor son of Abraham. He's the son of Mary uh, with no human father. He could be said to be their son because he was the descendant of. And we see the same thing in reverse, actually, also in Matthew chapter 1, in that genealogy. Matthew 1 records the genealogy of Jesus beginning with Abraham, but, and, and he breaks that up into three sets of 14 generations. But Matthew actually leaves out a few generations. Matthew chapter 1, verse 8 says, Joram was the father of Uzziah. But if father means what we take it to mean, then in English, then, then that's not true. But again, in Hebrew thought, father simply meant ancestor. And Joram is actually the great-great-grandfather of Uzziah. So Matthew is correct uh, that, that Joram was the ancestor of Uzziah. Matthew is not being deceptive, and he's not wrong. Uh, Joram was the ancestor of Uzziah, and everyone who read Matthew in that first uh, generation of readers, uh, they they knew the kings of Israel. Skipping generations and genealogies, ancient Near Eastern scholars tell us, was common practice in that day, and Matthew was making a theological point, a point apparently best made by leaving out certain kings. And by the way, you can see this telescoping of genealogies if you compare 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 3 through 15, with Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. What takes the chronicler 13 verses, including 23 people, Ezra condenses down to 5 verses mentioning only 16 people and leaving out his own father. He's not being dishonest, but he's condensing for his purposes, knowing that if anyone wanted the full version, they could go consult the book of Chronicles. Well, then we come back to Genesis chapter 5. The word used for fathered here, again, means more than our English word. Uh, The theological word book of the Old Testament says this, uh, the word does not necessarily point to the generation immediately following In Hebrew thought, an individual, by the act of giving birth to a child, becomes a parent or ancestor of all who descended from this child. Just as Christ is called the son of David and a son of Abraham, Yalad, the Hebrew word, may show the beginning of an individual's relationship to any descendant. And here's what this means. Uh, This genealogy may or may not be complete. Uh, That doesn't mean it's misleading because it's not saying in Hebrew culture what you think it is saying. Fathered simply means became the ancestor of. So when Seth fathers Enosh, it could mean he fathered Enosh's great-great-great-grandfather. What this means is any attempt at dating the creation of man from this genealogy is actually misguided and misleading from the text itself. We don't know that it is not complete, but we don't know that it is complete either, which is perfectly fine because that is not the purpose of genealogies in the book of Genesis. So then what is the purpose of this genealogy? What Moses emphasizes here first is something good in verses 1 and 2. God created man in the likeness of God, male and female. He named them Adam or man. And when Adam was 130 years old, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. What's the point? Uh, The image of God is carried on. Sin has not destroyed God's image. Though it is marred, it continues on in Adam's line. The image of God in humanity is passed on from parent to child, generation after generation. God is still making himself known through people made in his image in his world. And yet the unmistakable refrain in this chapter is the conclusion of each paragraph. The final word for each generation is, and he died. Yes, the image of God carries on, but death has broken in. Yes, one generation succeeds the next, but each generation ends in death. This refrain, which is not found in Genesis 11, which picks up and carries on this genealogy up to the days of Abraham, is emphasizing something important at this point. Death has come into the world. While God's image in man remains, something terrible has happened, corruption has entered in, and death has overtaken Adam. Not only is God's image passed on from Adam to his descendants, but God's curse on sin is as well. This is what makes hope so necessary. Death has broken in. This world is not what it was meant to be. We are no longer in paradise. But you probably knew that already. You experience that every day. You know hardship and pain. I don't have to tell you that. And so let's move on to what we do in the face of death. So first, hope's necessity, right, is the reality of death. The reality of death requires hope. Second, hope's counterfeit. This present age is an empty or vain or false hope. Human beings cannot live without hope. Uh, Without hope, we end up in despair. If despair continues, we end up with self-destruction. As a result, we actively seek out hope. Something, anything that will get me through this day and into the next. We see that in our passage by way of contrast. Uh, you probably noticed uh, that there are two people who break the pattern in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch and Lamech. Uh, before we uh, look at Enoch and Lamech, we have to look back at their counterparts in Genesis chapter 4. You see, while there are a number of similar names in the genealogy of Cain and in the genealogy of Seth, Moses goes out of his way to distinguish them. Now first, think about Enoch. Enoch. Uh, the Enoch of Seth's line walked with God and God took him. What about the Enoch of Cain's line in chapter 4? Enoch in Genesis four seventeen was Cain's son. Cain's wife conceived and bore him and Enoch is associated with the first city. Either because he, uh, Cain, built the city and named it after Enoch or Enoch built the city and named it after his son, Irad. The text could be taken either way. But either way, what is noteworthy About Enoch is his association with this first city. Notice the contrast between these two Enochs. Enoch, son of Cain, settles in the world. He settles in the city, a place of protection. But Enoch, son of Seth, walks with God and does not settle in this world. In fact, this world is not his home. Or compare the two Lamechs. Lamech, son of Cain, murders a man for insulting him and boasts about it to his two wives. Lamech, son of Seth, remembers the promises of God to remove the curse, and he boasts in that, naming his son Noah. Now, I want to ask a question about Cain's line for a minute then. In what was their hope? We can say one thing for certain, that their hope was in this life. Enoch settled in this life. Lamech trusted it and boasted in his strength to keep him safe. Lamech's sons, you may remember, went on to become great craftsmen and musicians, and we said a few weeks back that there's, of course, nothing wrong with such things. Those are good things, and yet it seems, given their place in Cain's line, that they put their trust in their strength, in their ingenuity, in what they could accomplish. Like their father, Lamech, they trusted in what their hands could do. You see, when we experience the brokenness of this age, this is our first temptation is to look around at what the world has to offer and to place our hope in this age and for this age. We hope that the powers of this age will make life work for us in this age. And, and, and let's just think about how this works for a minute. We hope for this age or that, that life will work in this age. And so we hope for things like an attractive spouse or a well-paying job or a conflict-free home or a large house or good friends we want our best life now. We want this world to fulfill us and satisfy us. Like Enoch, we want to settle in the land of wandering. And we hope in this age, that is in the powers of this age. If I want a well-paying job, I trust my hard work in school to get, to get it for me. If I want a conflict-free home, I trust my ability to first subtly manipulate, and when that doesn't work, forcefully control those around me in order to keep the peace. Or we run and hide the other way, looking to take shelter in the distractions of this age. See, like Lamech, we trust in the powers at our disposal to make life work in our favor. And of course, if we don't have the power to make life work, we we might cling to others, hoping that the people around us can make life work in our favor. Or again, finally, if that fails, we fall back into despair and depression because we are unable to see a way forward. See, we hope that the powers of this age will make life work for us in this age. Our hope is fully centered on the present age. But that is a false hope. It's a counterfeit. It's empty. Our problem is this age is broken. How can we look to this age to save us from this age? Everything that might save or satisfy in the present age partakes of the brokenness of the present age. Jeremiah would say, we have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for ourselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This world cannot satisfy Uh, Do do you remember, uh, it's similar to the old uh, children's song, uh, There's a Hole in My Bucket, Dear Liza, Dear Liza. Do you remember that song? Uh, I'm not making this up. Today is National Hole in My Bucket Day, May 30th. And uh, the tragedy of that song, right, uh, the tragedy of that song is that Henry has a bucket with a hole in it. Liza tells him to fix it. To fix it, he needs straw. To cut the straw, he needs a knife. To sharpen the knife, he needs a whetstone. To wet the stone, he needs water. To fetch water, he needs the bucket, which has a hole in it. That's the situation that we find ourselves in when we look to the present age to save us from the present age. This world is broken. Nothing in this broken world can fix this broken world. So hope's necessity is the reality of death requires hope. Hope's counterfeit is that this present age is an empty hope. Whatever you put your trust in, in this life, will ultimately fail. So third, that brings us then to hope's foundation. The promise of the resurrection grounds hope. Now, as I said a moment ago, we, we need hope to survive. It's not optional. So, so if every hope in this age is empty and false, where can we find a hope that is solid and sure? Sure. The answer, of course, is in Christ and in his resurrection. But let's start with Enoch in verses 21 to 24. Again, verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I don't know about you, but I've always been fascinated by Enoch. He actually has the shortest lifespan of anyone in this chapter, 365 years, but he is conspicuous for other reasons. First, he did not merely live, as is recorded for all the other characters in this chapter, but he walked with God. Enoch's was a life of communion with God, right? To walk with God is to enjoy intimate, daily fellowship with him, Noah also is said to have walked with God in Genesis 6-9. Abraham is commanded to walk before God and be blameless. Malachi tells us that Levi walked with God in peace and uprightness. Micah tells us that God requires that we walk humbly with him. So what does this mean? What does walking with God mean? Well, James Boyce points out three aspects of this walk. The first, he says, is we must walk by faith. And not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5 7. Hebrews 11 says this of Enoch that that by faith Enoch lived his life. I can't walk with God, whom I cannot see, if I don't believe him and his word. And so I must pay more attention to what God says, even than what my eyes see. Then I will walk with him, regardless of what's going on around me. Second, I must walk in holiness. First John 1 John 1.7 says, we must walk in the light as God is in the light. And Hebrews 11.5 says, before Enoch was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. His whole life was a walk of obedience to his father. And third, we must walk in agreement with God. Amos 3.3 uh, 3 says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. And Boy says, if Enoch walked with God, it was clearly because he was not fighting or resisting God, but was delighting to walk as God directed him. Is that your heart's desire? To walk by faith, in holiness, in obedience to God's will, step by step. And this walking for, with God is not perfection, it's, it's not sinlessness, but it's the idea that the whole of one's life is lived in the presence of God. Conscious of God's presence, walking with him, not not out front doing what you want to do, not behind, slow in your obedience, not crossways going against God's purposes, but walking with God, walking in God's strength, walking in God's ways, walking in prayerful communion with him. Now, of course, the story of Enoch is fascinating, not just because of how he lived, walking with God, but because of how he died, or rather, how he didn't die. Verse 24 says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not because God took him. God simply took him. Hebrews 11, verse 5 says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, Enoch is, is almost completely unique in this. He shares this distinctive of never tasting death with Elijah, who also was taken directly into heaven, you may remember. The point of this odd little story is this, for God's people, death does not have the final word. Enoch's hope was not in this life. He lived the shortest life recorded in this chapter. No, his hope was in the life to come, in the fullness of communion with his Father. Is that where your hope is? Is it that this life will get a little better here and there, or is it in the life to come? when you will enjoy communion with God in all of its fullness. Now, there's another side to this hope, of course. It's not only a hope not in the present age, but for the life to come. It is also a hope not in the powers of this age, but in the promises of God. this is where the story of Lamech comes in. Lamech fathers a son and calls him Noah, which means rest, saying in verse 29, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That is, Lamech believed that Noah would fulfill God's promises in Genesis 3.15. Noah would defeat the serpent and undo the curse. And Noah was certainly a great man who did save humanity from the curse in one sense. Without Noah, the whole human race would have been destroyed in the flood. After the flood, Noah plants a vineyard and so experiences God's blessing on the toil of his hands. But what is striking here is Lamech's belief in God's promises. That's what walking with God looks like, believing God's promises. This is where hope comes from, not human strength, but the promises of God. If God has not promised, we have no reason to hope. But if God has promised, then we have every reason to believe that God will do what he has said. And that, and that that is what gives us hope, what God has promised, what he has said. Enoch walked with God. Lamech believed the promises. But, of course, we have something more sure than either of them because we have the promises fulfilled in Jesus. You know, Jesus stepped into the world as son of Adam, not just made in the image of God, but the image of God having taken on human flesh. He came in the line of Abraham, the line of uh, Adam, the line of David, the seed of the woman, come to crush the head of the serpent. But he did that in a most unlikely way. And we read in Genesis 5 of Adam, and he died, and of Seth, and he died, and of Enosh, and he died, and of Kenan, and he died, and on and on. And then comes Jesus, the one to conquer the serpent, and he died. Though sinless and perfect, he took on our guilt, he bore our sin, he did what Enoch could not do, he tasted death for us that we might receive heaven in him. And yet not just heaven. Jesus did not stay dead. The Father did not abandon him to the grave, but kept his promises and raised Jesus from the dead. Our Father has fulfilled his promises of new creation in Jesus, and he raised Jesus to his right hand, giving him authority over heaven and earth and giving him a people so that every promise finds its yes and amen in him. You want a promise to live by, right? You want, you want hope for this broken world. Well, look to Jesus, who took on all brokenness and sin, faced it in the cross, died, took on death, and then defeated death in his resurrection, having received the promise of life. And the promise for us is whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. And Jesus will raise us up on the last day. Even godly Enoch awaits that day. He awaits in heaven for the resurrection when his body, along with ours, will be changed into something new and glorious. That is our hope. We will be changed. Whether we taste death in this life or not, we await the transformation of the resurrection when all things will be made new. Our hope is in the promises of God for the new creation to come, a new creation which has broken into the present, first in the resurrection of Jesus, and then by the presence and the power of the Spirit in our lives. The foundation of that hope is Jesus' resurrection, because he rose, so we will rise at his return. And So we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We do long for his return when all things will be made new. Father, we pray that you would set our hope on that day, even as we hope in the presence and power of your Spirit, who is at work now in us and through us for your glory, giving us glimpses, foretastes, of the resurrection life to come. Work in us by your Spirit. Work through us by your Spirit,